Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the University of Sheffield. This is a University of Sheffield podcast and today we're going to be talking about dark matter with uh, Dr Ed Dore and Professor Dan Tovey. So, um, Dan, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Sure, yes. So, um, as I said, my name's uh, Dan Tovey um, and I work on, uh, uh, in well, in the field of experimental particle physics and I work on an experiment called ATLAS, which is one of the two biggest experiments at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Geneva. Fantastic. And Ed? Um, well, I work on two things. I work on searches for dark matter, in particular axions, with an experiment called ADMX. And at the University of Sheffield, I'm probably better known for work with the LIGO collaboration on the search for direct signals from gravitational waves. Super. Um, so today we're going to be focusing on the dark matter part of all of this. Um, and dark matter is something that I certainly didn't know a lot about um, before I started working for the Faculty of Science, and uh, I believe a lot of people probably don't really know much about it. So, Ed, could you give us a bit of background on what dark matter is, and uh, or what we at least think it is? What are the two theories that are... Really well, first thing to say is we don't know what it is, and sort of caveat to that is it could be more than one thing. Um, and the idea came about from careful measurements trying to essentially weigh pieces of the universe using gravity. Um, so if you observe the way a galaxy rotates or the way clusters of galaxies accelerate, um, you can deduce how much matter there is in those objects. And there's been a sort of continuous process of refinement of those measurements over the last 50 years or so. And it's become clear that we don't actually know what quite a large portion of the gravitationally bound matter in our universe is. And that's a big puzzle. It's called the dark matter problem. Um, so there's been many ideas as to what could be the solution to this problem. Um, and the obvious ones are things we don't observe because they're not bright enough. So maybe stars that are too faint to observe or massive objects that for one reason or another are not emitting or absorbing light. Um, many of those ideas are actually very difficult because if the matter that's out there that we can't see is all made of ordinary things like protons and neutrons and nuclei and atoms then the question arises, how did all of those heavy elements come to be? It turns out it's very difficult to manufacture that much heavy matter. That's called, um, in scientific languages, called the nucleosynthesis bound. There are, there's just only so much heavy stuff you can make that turns into atoms. So once you've got rid of those ideas and you've eliminated neutrinos, which are light and not massless, but do not have the right properties to make the galaxy and the universe the way it is today, then you're left with other ideas which are more exotic. And in that situation now, all of the sort of um, sensible, scientifically sensible ideas for what dark matter is are exotics. And so, for example, it could be weakly interacting massive particles, which we can explain what they are in a minute. Maybe Dan will do that. Or it could be primordial black holes, perhaps. That's another idea that people sometimes bandy about. Or it could be a class of particles from the so-called hidden sector. And one example of those, that class of, of fields and particles is the axion. And then it could be lots of other things too. Um, it's one of these things that the, the, the problem is fairly clearly there. The solution is not at all obvious. And indeed, it could be that the reality is that there's many different things we don't observe except through gravity in the universe. 
So it's a really difficult problem. Yes. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned uh, weekly interactive... Uh, You'll have to say that again. Weekly interacting... Weekly interacting massive particles. Massive particles. It's easier to use the acronym WIMPs. WIMPs. Um, and, Dan, you're a bit of an expert on WIMPs. Well, I'm not, not <laughs> directly, but... the Yeah, so, so weakly interactive massive particles, basically it's a generic term for one class of solution to the dark matter problems, as Ed's saying. Um, so if you have uh, particles which have uh, masses which are in a particular range... Uh, and also if they um, uh, interact with normal matter, the matter around us, with a particular strength, then they can form a, a solution to the dark matter. Could, could, if they existed, they could form a solution to the dark matter problem. Um, we don't know that they do exist, but uh, they would form a, a good candidate. And there's many possible... WIMPs aren't really a theory. They are a, a class of solution. There are many theories that that predict particles that could constitute WIMPs and therefore could constitute the dark matter. Um, and our job as, as uh, experimental physicists is really to go and um, search for any, all the possibilities for, for what could constitute the dark matter. Uh, and in particular, um, in, in my case, what, what um, could constitute uh, the WIMPs. So WIMPs are, um, I mean, going by the name, weakly interacting and massive particles. So they're still subatomic particles, something like like protons are, or uh, are they yeah, kind they, of they are they they are subatomic particles. Typically, they're predicted by new theories uh, of particle physics, um, which are beyond our current understanding of of, of how the universe works, smaller scales. Um, so these, we have a very good theory for how the universe works. It's called the standard model of particle physics. Uh, from various reasons that, uh, actually some of which that, that Ed just mentioned, uh, we can be pretty confident that whatever particle it is that constitutes the dark matter, it isn't contained within the standard model of particle physics. So it's what we would say beyond the standard model of particle physics. Uh, and so there are various theories which of, of beyond standard model physics which predict the existence of these particles. And so there's, there's many different candidate possibilities. And as I guess we'll talk about later, uh, one of those theories which predicts the existence of such particles is called supersymmetry. Super. And before we get into supersymmetry, how do WIMPs, sorry, how do uh, axions differ from WIMPs? Well, um, they're very, very much lighter. So when you say weakly interacting massive particle, you don't just mean feebly interacting. It's not. It's just antisocial. It, it's a more scientifically meaningful term than that. What it means is that the interactions resemble the interactions of particles which have already been discovered um, in accelerators, and in particular... The, the masses shouldn't be too far and the interaction shouldn't be too different from those of the W and Z bosons, which you might have heard of. Okay? Um, and that sort of sets the scale for how they're detected. It sets the scale for what people think they do in detectors. And it sets the scale also for what the backgrounds are going to be when you start building detectors to look for them, either direct or indirect. Now, it's also possible that dark matter particles aren't even really heavy enough to be called particles. It's possible that what we're dealing with here is what's called a massive field. So that happens where you have a very, very high number density of incredibly light particles. 
So, for example, if axions exist, they could have one million millionth the mass of an electron. Now, electrons aren't very heavy to start with, so that's really very light. And because they're cold, dark matter, that also means they're not moving very fast. So in terms of their wave properties, and all particles have wave properties, you can calculate the de Broglie wavelength, the sort of characteristic wavelength of an axion. It turns out to be hundreds of metres. And the number density of axions turns out to be something like 100 million million particles per cubic centimetre. So with that number density and that wavelength, they're not really particles. All they are is the quanta of a massive field, a field that contains mass energy. So a very, very light particle also has very different properties from a WIMP in terms of what it interacts with, how it interacts. But I should again remind you that it's not known that these things exist, right? There's no experimental evidence that axions exist. There's conveniences. Axions were brought into existence not just to solve the dark matter problem, but also to solve other problems, rather like WIMPs. Right? WIMPs don't just exist because they're a convenient dark matter problem solution. That's the last thing you'd bring them into existence for. WIMPs, if they exist, come about because there's some standard model extension which fixes some other very fundamental difficulty with our standard model. So axions and WIMPs in that sense are similar, but in the sense of their properties and their masses and what part of the standard model they arose from, they're very different. Mm -hmm. So you're saying you have this standard model that answers so many questions about the universe, but there are these gaps, and we're kind of using theory to fill in these gaps within the model, and now it's time to look for... It's an effective theory, but it's a very effective, effective theory. It does a very good job at explaining nature. And of course, as physicists, you want to find the jagged edges, the places where the theory runs into trouble. And there are some. And every time you find one, people think hard and they come up with a solution to the problem. And usually you have to pay the piper when you have a solution. There's some, some price you have to pay it. And the price you have to pay often is a new particle or field. Or in the case of supersymmetry, for example, a very large number of new particles and fields. So on, on the point of supersymmetry, we'll kind of bring it down to that. So uh, WIMPs are a class of particles, you say, and yes. supersymmetric particles, are they one type or are they just a smaller class? No, no, so there's, there's really... The, the, I mean, we have to acknowledge that we, we can think up many, many different sorts of theory. Uh, it may well be that the fact that you know, nature has, has come up with something completely different and, and outsmarted us. Um, so uh, there's many different possibilities for what WIMPs could be, and we, we don't know what all of them are. Supersymmetry is a theory which, just one theory, which contains within it a, a WIMP candidate or a particle that could be uh, the dark matter. Um, and in supersymmetry in particular, to, to come to uh, Ed's point about these theories typically being proposed to solve other problems. So in the case of supersymmetry, um, it's actually... It's probably not really fair to call it even a theory. It's more of a principle. Um, and the idea is that, uh, as its name suggests, it's, it's a symmetry. And we, uh, I guess people know what a, what a symmetry is. You know, when you look at, uh, in a mirror, that's, that's a type of symmetry uh, between yourself and your image. Um, supersymmetry is an example of a symmetry. It's a very complicated mathematical type of symmetry. Uh, we actually happen to know that the universe as a whole... Uh, the fu- at the fundamental level, appears to function on the basis of symmetry. The universe obeys certain symmetries. And in fact, it was by understanding which symmetries it is that the universe respects that we developed over the course of uh, 40 or 50 years 
the theory of the standard model of particle physics. So it's actually entirely based upon ideas for the mathematical uh, uh, representation of symmetry. Now, uh, there are many different sorts of symmetry we can have in physics, uh, and in particular in terms of the uh, symmetries that, um, that physics can have, there's actually one, in particular, one missing symmetry that has not been seen with fundamental particles, and that is supersymmetry. It's, it's very difficult to explain simply what it is, mm -hmm. but perhaps one way to put it is, to, is that um, we know in the standard model of particle physics and in the world around us, we know that there are, uh, that particles have a property called spin. Uh, it's related to angular momentum, which is, which is sort of uh, what a, a skater has when they rotate on, the, on their axis. Um, so particles have spin, and supersymmetry is, is a symmetry between two different types of particle which have different spin. Uh, so it's between a, particle called, uh, a class of particles called fermions, which have one amount of spin, and another class of particle called bosons, which have a different amount of spin. And supersymmetry is a, is a symmetry between the two. Now, we've never seen any evidence, direct evidence, for, uh, for this in fundamental particles in nature. Um, but it would be, I guess, somewhat surprising if nature didn't. It chose to use all these other symmetries, but types of symmetry, but didn't use this one. Um, so that's a sort of a hand-waving argument. In fact, the reason that, that over the years, over the decades, supersymmetry has become so interesting uh, initially was actually because um, of a problem, technical problem with the standard model of particle physics, uh, which is related to the, the Higgs boson. So I guess people may have heard of the, the Higgs boson before. Um, it's a particle which in, in the standard model is believed to give mass to all the other fundamental particles in the universe. And it does that by interacting with them. Um, so the interactions of the Higgs boson with the other particles give them mass in a, in a very technical way. Um, now, uh, people may have heard that the Higgs boson was actually discovered fairly recently, back in 2012, uh, at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, which is what I work on. Um, the Higgs boson, though, has a fundamental problem with it in the standard model of particle physics, and that is that it likes to interact with heavy things. That's, that's the, f the fact that it gives mass to stuff, uh, uh, that how heavy something is, is basically governed by how much the Higgs boson likes to interact with it. And what this means is that the Higgs boson really, really likes to interact with really, really heavy particles. Now, you can sort of think a little bit about this. And typically, the particles that we know about tend to be light particles, mostly because both in our experiments, in, for instance, particle accelerators like the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, or elsewhere, or even in the Big Bang in the universe at large, uh, we, know, we know about light particles because they are the easiest to produce. You know, we, we, in a particle accelerator, for instance, we pump energy into a small volume of space, and that energy gets converted into the mass of new particles via E equals mc squared. And uh, because we only have a finite amount of energy, that means we typically produce light particles. Um, now, the problem with the Higgs boson is that it really likes to interact with heavy stuff. That means that uh, 
the properties of the Higgs boson, which are affected basically by what it interacts with, um, they should be very strongly affected by any really heavy particles that they're around. Even if we've never seen them directly, they should have a big impact on the Higgs boson, in particular on the mass of the Higgs boson. Now, we've measured the mass of the Higgs boson. When we saw it at CERN in 2012, we were able to measure it very precisely. In fact, it's now, surprisingly, now only six years or so later, uh, it is now actually one of the, in terms of the heavy standard model particles, it's, it's the mass is, it's the best known or one of the best known. So we know its mass very well. And what's really surprising is that it's relatively light and it's stable, if you like. It hasn't, it's not, it doesn't seem to be affected very strongly by stuff happening with other particles with very high masses or happening at a very energy, high energy scales. And that's really strange. Um, and super, where supersymmetry comes into this is that basically supersymmetry provides a way to basically stabilise the mass of the Higgs boson and cancel out some of these troublesome interactions that could cause its mass to basically not be at the, the low level that we measure it to be, but be at some huge high value. So that's, that's one argument for why supersymmetry might, might be correct. And there are other possibilities that might solve this problem as well, but it's one possibility. And then as a, as a side, uh, uh, side benefit, it actually also contains a, uh, what's called a, a supersymmetric partner particle for some of the neutral particles in the standard model, which, if it exists, uh, could be, would have the properties consistent with being a WIMP and therefore would have been created in the early universe after the Big Bang and could constitute the dark matter. Awesome. So I see from both of these theories that you've got, like you said at the beginning, several gaps in, in the standard modelling, kind of what we know, and these are really good candidates to fill all of these in, and, and they both fill in quite different things as well. Um, so coming back to the problem of dark matter itself, is it possible that dark matter is actually a dark matters, let's say, that, that these gaps that you're filling in actually constitute... Uh, different types of dark matter would that, that be a possibility or it, it's it's a, it's a possibility yes i mean i think one one of the principles though that we we typically have to work with when we don't really know what we're what we're doing you know what what we are what the solution to a problem is is you have to apply you know occam's razor which is basically saying that you know you take the simplest solution uh, to to your problem you uh, also it, might add other problems to your clipboard of problems because if you posit that there are several components of dark matter and that sort of means by implication that the contribution of all of these components is on the same level otherwise one of them's a clear winner and you're back where you started then you've got to answer the question how come all of these components contribute at the same level that's another sort of numbers game you don't like to get into fine-tuning a theory to have the properties you observe you'd rather there was a mechanism so then there'd be more mechanisms that would need to be invented to explain why the mass density in axions was similar to that in, in WIMPs or whatever your, your, your um, cocktail is. Mm -hmm. So it, it's fraught, that's also fraught with difficulties, unfortunately. Yeah, so it's a possibility, but there's a lot of other problems that would arise from that. Um, but it seems to me, from what you've said, though, that let's say even uh, only one of them or either neither of them can answer the dark matter problem. They, they still solve so many other things that they're... they're I haven't so explained many. to you what axions solve. Oh, I still haven't. Yeah, no, I, no, no, I, I hadn't noticed that. So, so axions make a 
subsector of the standard model called quantum chromodynamics, which is the theory that binds nuclei together, um, behave more like we observe. Um, we observe that quantum chromodynamics obeys a certain symmetry called the PQ symmetry, um, sorry, called, called the CP symmetry. Ugh, get my letters straight here. M much better than it has any right to. Um, we've seen violations of CP. Um, by the way, CP is just flip all the charges on the particles and reflect it in a mirror. It's nothing complicated. We've seen some violation of CP in other parts of the standard model, which are sort of theoretically perhaps simpler than quantum chromodynamics. And so you'd naively expect quantum chromodynamics, which is actually the most complicated bit of the standard model in many, many ways, um, to be the, the worst behaved and the one most likely to break symmetries. And the CP symmetry is exquisitely conserved in the standard model. In fact, if you make a calculation of how much CP symmetry you might expect versus how much, see how much CP violation you might expect in a standard model versus how much you actually measure, well, we measure zero. But the upper limit, because as experimentalists never really measure zero, the upper limit that we observe is sort of something like 10 to 12 orders of magnitude smaller than the amount you naively expect. So it really is unbelievably well conserved. So that's mm. the problem called the strong CP problem. Why do the strong interactions conserve CP? And the solution is to posit the existence of a new symmetry. It's back to Dan's thing about everything being about symmetries. And that symmetry, and this is where I got mixed up earlier, is called the PQ symmetry, which is rather like other parts of the standard model. It's a spontaneously broken symmetry. And what that means is that when you look today in the universe we live in, there's no conservation of this symmetry anymore but at higher energies perhaps in the early universe or in high energy interactions you get conservation of this pq symmetry and that symmetry breaking process gives rise to a new particle there's a, a, a rather smart person at mit who's gone now i'm sure called defrey goldstone who thought all this out in the 1970s and, and this connection between broken symmetries and fields and so you get a single new particle it's called the axion and you don't know its mass, it just turns out if it has a very light mass, A, we wouldn't have seen it yet, and B, it could still be the dark matter. So it's this sort of interesting coincidence, if this thing exists, it has the right properties to solve the problem, and that's sort of the dual reason for its existence. So it's actually rather similar to what Dan was saying about mm -hmm. the, the WIMPs. If they exist, A, they shore up the standard model and make it work better, and B, they solve this long-standing dark matter problem. Same story. And I guess the key point at the end there was the if they exist, and, and that kind of brings us to this, this million-dollar question of do they exist and what are we doing to, to find this empirical evidence for their existence? So uh, I guess two, two very different experiments going on, or I guess multiple different experiments for all of these. So, uh, well, I'll go first on this one because there's not too much to say. I mean, axions have been searched for probably since uh, mid-1980s. Um, as soon as people thought they existed, other people started thinking how you might detect them. Um, but there haven't been all that many axion search experiments, and I think the reason for that probably has to do with the fact that not all that many physicists took them very seriously for a long time. And the same can be said of other ideas in physics. For a very long time, nobody believed there was a cosmological constant. I mean, the people who got up at conferences on cosmology, because I've seen these talks years ago, and talked about the cosmological constant being non-zero, um, everybody's eyes rolled back in their heads. Nobody wanted to believe this because it was so awkward and complex and difficult to, to sort of reconcile with common sense that nobody believed it. And axions perhaps 
for a large part of their history, have been in the same basket of theories. It, it's been something for a sort of minority sport. Um, but the way you look for axions, or at least the most sensitive way to look for axions, is to try and get them to turn into photons. Now, they don't like to do this. They're reluctant to. They're, they are feebly coupled, not weakly coupled, feebly coupled to, to, to photons. And their coupling is dependent on their mass. So if you make them very light, so they can be dark matter, you discover that it's very hard to get them to convert into photons. In fact, if I put an axion on the desk here and sat there waiting for it to decay into photons, it would take 10 to the 34 years to decay into photons. We haven't got that long. <laughs> no, no, this podcast hasn't got that long. Um, this, so, so what you do instead is you assume... Um, that, that there are axions all around us, and, and with those kinds of tiny masses and dark matter problem existing in our galaxy, just as all others, it's reasonable to assume that there's axions all over the place. Um, and you then arrange for there to be a large static magnetic field, and you arrange for there to be a resonant object in which photons can ring, like a bell ringing. And in comes the axion. It sort of collides with the magnetic field. The axion field interacts with the magnetic field and produces a real electromagnetic field and that real electromagnetic field interacts with your resonator causes it to ring up and the resonator if you like stores the energy from the production of the photons so that you can see that you've got more energy than you would have if the axions weren't there that's basically how it works now what your resonator usually is is a metal box containing an antenna so you can measure how much radiation there is in the box in its vibration modes because it's the vibration modes of the box you're using as a detector i have a, another idea as to how you might make a different kind of resonator which has an interesting property in that you can generate the resonance for yourself artificially using electronics rather than relying on metal surfaces which gives you much greater control over the resonance and in particular it means you can have multiple resonances in which case you could look for multiple axions at the same time but that's something i'm working on with the ADMX collaboration. But the, the classical axion detector is a metal box in a magnetic field. You tune the resonant frequencies of the box using a, essentially using a mechanical tuning mechanism. And then you look for extra power that appears with the tuning of the resonant frequencies in exactly the right place. And that, by the way, is the other reason axion experiments haven't been that popular. It's going to take a very long time. Mm -hmm. If you ever sat and tuned a shortwave radio trying to find very weak radio stations, which maybe you haven't because you're younger than me, Right, but if you had, you'd know that if you, if you want to do that, you've got to tune very, very slowly and listen very carefully. And qualitatively, that's the same problem the axon experiment has. In order to make out a tiny signal, one has to go very slowly across the dial of possible axion masses. And the experiment that I worked on when I was a PhD student at MIT has now been running ever since I was a PhD student, in mean, 25 years. So it, it's a very long game and no guarantees of success. So your, your research, I guess, you've got partly theoretical kind of come up, coming up with these new ways of detecting things, but also a very practical side. I take well, it. You go don't forget that experimentalists have ideas too. Yeah. <laughs> coming up with new ways of detecting things is intellectually challenging, and it is the territory of experimentalists. You know, Feynman said that, it, that, that, that theorists theorise, deduce, and guess, and experimentalists experiment, theorise, deduce, and guess. So in some sense, experiment is a superset of theory. So I like to still shout on behalf of the experimentalists because having new ideas on how to detect these is important. And it, it, yeah, so, so I hope I've had a good one. It may be, it doesn't have had a stupid one, it doesn't work, time will tell. You know? but, but we've still got the classical axion detectors, the metal box and magnetic field, and, the, and those are running, and will carry on hopefully running until we find the things. 
And are any of these actually based within Sheffield or the more collaborative kind of project? No, ADMX is in Seattle. When I was working <laughs> on it, it was in California, but it moved. Um, there are Axion Search experiments which have run in the UK. They use a different technique called light shining through a wall. There's one in particular called Cascade, which published results a few years ago, which was based at the Cockroft Institute near Manchester. Um, not anything like as sensitive as ADMX. There's also interest in doing an experiment um, in Europe from a man called Clive Speak down at Birmingham. So there are people interested, but I can count them on the fingers of one hand. It's a very small number of people who are actually practically involved in the experiments. But there's a much larger community of people in theory who are interested in axions, particularly now, and that's because this idea of a hidden sector of very light fields that are very feebly coupled and therefore difficult to see in accelerators which we might have missed in our hurry to push to higher and higher masses, um, is taking hold. It's an idea which people are interested in, partly because, of course, if it did turn out to be true, we wouldn't have to build another super-high-energy accelerator to detect them. So there's probably some politics in why people are interested in those <laughs> things. But nevertheless, axions are in that class, so I don't mind having a bunch of new theorists friends. That's okay by me. Fantastic. And I guess on the other side, we've got... Uh the, the experiments for supersymmetry and, and WIMPs and all that kind yeah, of stuff. So so, how, how does that so, differ? So, so, well, it's it's a completely different energy that we're dealing with for a start. So what Ed's looking for is very low energy signals um, for, because they are very light particles. For WIMPs, typically we are looking at, for much heavier particles. And the one way you can go about doing this is, is what I work on, which is um, basically producing them in collisions at the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, and because they're heavy, you need lots of energy, equals mc squared again, in order to produce them. So you need huge particle accelerators, huge experiments. Um, and so I work on an experiment called ATLAS uh, at, uh, at the LHC in CERN in Geneva. And um, there's uh, many of my colleagues also in Sheffield are also involved in the same experiment. Uh, and in that experiment, basically, the LHC collides uh, um, protons, which are the nuclei of hydrogen atoms, accelerates them up to very high energy, collides them in the middle of the experiment. And then we use uh, the experiment, the, the apparatus, which is what ATLAS basically is, uh, that basically records all the subatomic debris that's created in the collisions. Uh, and by studying the... Uh, motion and properties of the particles, the, the debris, if you like, that's created in the collisions, we can infer what happened right at the very heart of the collision. Um, now, in, this, in the context of, of dark matter, what we can do is we can basically look to uh, measure the uh, momentum of the particles that we see that are created in the collisions. We can measure their momentum uh, and we can, every particle we measure or we see, we, we measure its momentum. And then for each collision, we basically add up all the momenta of all the particles that we see. Uh, you might ask why we, why we do that. Well, of course, dark matter particles, being dark matter, they interact very weakly, as Ed explained. Um, and that means that they don't interact in our experiment. They don't interact in Atlas, so we don't see them directly. However, everything else does. Um, so we measure the momenta of all the other stuff, 
And broadly speaking, because we know the momentum of the two protons that collided initially before the collision, we can use a very basic property of physics, which is called conservation of momentum, Newton's laws, uh, to infer what the momentum should be after the collision. We compare that with what we actually see from all the vis visible stuff that we see in the experiment. And if there's a difference, then that could be because we're missing some of the particles that were created in the collision. Why might we be missing them? Well, maybe they are dark matter particles. Maybe they've we've created some invisible particles which have gone shooting out from the collision point. So that's the basic principle that we use to search for the production of dark matter particles at the LHC. And, of course, if we saw this, then that would tell us that the LHC is basically acting as a, as a dark matter factory. So it's actually increasing the amount of dark matter in the universe, which is a, a weird concept. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's quite ge generic. Um, that would work for basically for many different sorts of, of WIMP. Um, but we actually can be even more clever because if we know the theory that is predicting the or the type of WIMP that, that, that we're looking for, then we can use other properties of that theory to make our search much more powerful. And that's actually what we do with the search for supersymmetric dark matter. Uh, there, we typically, our most powerful searches don't just search for the production of the dark matter directly. They search for the production of other supersymmetric particles. Now, so the theory of supersymmetry basically predicts a partner particle for every single standard model particle. Uh, we've never seen any of these partner particles, but if they exist, then we might be able to create them in the collisions at the LHC. And the advantage of them is that they typically would interact much more strongly with the protons that are colliding. So we might stand a better chance of seeing them. And then they, because they have to be heavier than the dark matter particles, they basically decay in the same manner as a radioactive nucleus might decay. They decay ultimately into the dark matter. So the signature is that basically we, what we would observe in a collision if we created some supersymmetric particles is we would see various other particles being thrown out from the decay of the, of the heavy supersymmetric particles and then we would see the signature of the dark matter being created which this, this imbalance or, or inconsistency in momentum we give it a technical term, it's called missing transverse energy and so if we see some missing transverse energy in a collision and all these other particles, then um, that could be a signature for the production of dark matter. So we can, at the LHC, we can search generically for dark matter production, but we can also search for specific theories of dark matter. Uh, I should say that that's one way you can go about searching for WIMPs. Um, there is another key way that you can do it, which actually which Sheffield is also involved with, uh, which is that you can look for actual dark matter WIMPs created in the Big Bang, which must be all around us because we know dark matter is all around us, you can look for them not being produced but, be, but interacting. Um, and in fact, one of, one of the most powerful searches we have for that uh, uses basically a, a pot of a very cold xenon gas, um, so liquefied xenon, liquid xenon. Uh, and so it will use several tonnes of that and basically, once in a blue moon, a dark matter particle might interact with one of the xenon nuclei in that pot, and it will recoil away uh, and generate some an electrical signal. Uh, and with some very clever electronics and analysis of data, 
you can actually tell the difference between that and other things that might be happening. So that's what we call direct, direct detection or direct searches for dark matter. It's another way of searching for WIMPs. Uh, as I said, Sheffield is involved in uh, one of those experiments. Also, it's, it's called Lux Zeppelin. So one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Vitaly Kodryavtsev, is involved in that. And when that starts running in a few years' time, uh, that is expected to basically give us our best chance of searching directly for, if you like, Big Bang-produced uh, wimp dark matter. And looking forward to, uh, I guess, the future, if, if you could come up with a most a short sentence of where you see this, this research being in something like 10 or maybe even 50 years, um, where, where you see the technology going and the, the theory going, if you can even predict such things, uh, what, what have people got to look forward to uh, in the future of this field? Well, in terms of, maybe if I start on the, on the supersymmetry and WIMP side, so the, um, in terms of searches for uh, WIMPs and supersymmetry production, the uh, Large Hadron Collider, that's really the only game in town from the point of view of big, big particle accelerators. Um, the, uh, that actually will be upgraded uh, twice, actually, over the next few years, uh, basically to increase the, the number of collisions that we can uh, create and, and measure. Um, and so basically in, uh, in the 2020s, we'll be collecting much, much more data uh, than we have currently, and in experimental particle physics, um, the amount of data is, 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 is everything. You know, the more data you have, uh, the more powerful your search is. So that, basically, we expect to collect something like 30 times as much data in, in the next you know, 15, 20 years than we, than we have currently, and that will make a big difference to our ability to search for this. Hopefully, we will find evidence mm. for production of supersymmetry. Uh, at the same time, for the direct searches for WIMPs, so uh, using, for instance, liquid xenon, as I mentioned earlier, um, there they have uh, um, a big new experiment which will be coming online again in a few years' time, Lux Zeppelin, um, and that will really transform that field. It will really give a very good chance of finding evidence for WIMPs if, if they are out there. Uh, and then after that... Um, who knows? It may be that the future of that field then is to is to coalesce, bring all the different experiments together and build an even bigger experiment. And again, because you have more data from a bigger experiment, that again gives you much more power for, for finding something. Yeah, it just keeps on growing. And uh, I mean, you said you were talking well, in about... in a sense, the dark matter experiments looking for axions and hidden sector things are pushing a different frontier. Um, I think because you're looking for fields which are very feebly interacting, I won't say weakly interacting because that's a term we've already defined and it means something else, feebly interacting fields, you have to measure tiny amounts of power. And for instance, even an optimistic axion theorist will put the power deposited in the axion experiment ADMX currently at about 10 to the minus 22 watts. Right. So you're at a level where you're literally looking for very small numbers of quanta quanta of radiation, um, all of your oscillators become governed by quantum mechanics and they're coupled to the rest of the world so they're slightly lossy quantum mechanical oscillators and in the case of my idea for example you're also running a feedback loop which has one of these quantum oscillators in it and so you have to start thinking very hard about what you're actually measuring and there's another frontier where people are worried about 
these same kinds of questions, and it's the quantum computing frontier and quantum information and quantum measurement. There's been a huge amount of activity in that field in the last few years. There are several experimentalists in that field interested in ADMX just because of the kind of experiment it is. So I think what you'll find with hidden sector searches in general, not just axions, but all of these ideas for light fields, is that you'll see a sort of coalescence of people who are doing quantum measurement in different ways, some of them with atomic beams, some of them with electrical circuits, some of them with other things, and a community of people who are interested in this dark matter and the hidden, hidden sector. And that could be very interesting. It's sort of a hot area, you know, and, and there's, there's some government investment in it, so there is hope that there will be continuing support for searches for axions. I'd love it if we found them. I think they exist. I've had many years to decide, and I, I think now axions are the solution that will turn out to be correct. Um, I could easily be wrong, but it's certainly going to be something we pursue, um, probably unless there is a definitive discovery of WIMPs, in which case there wouldn't be so much sale in the winds who are doing, of the people who are doing it. Um, time will tell. Mm -hmm. right? And if you go into axions and it turns out that you discover WIMPs and all the axion experiments disappear, you can always go into quantum computing and quantum measurement and <laughs> jobs there. This has been a University of Sheffield podcast. We've been talking about dark matter with Dr Ed Dorr and Professor Dan Tovey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>